0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. I don't know if we have any heirs or heiresses with us this morning, anyone who's expecting a great inheritance I've been assured by my parents that my inheritance is already spent. So most of what I know about inheritance, I've had to learn from literature, learn from books. Shakespeare taught me that inheritance can be something to go to war over. The first complex scene in his play, Henry V, is all about sorting out the inheritance of claims to the thrones of France. I learned a lot from the Victorians about inheritance if you've ever read Dickens or any other Victorian novelist, it seems like you always have at least one heir or heiress in a Victorian novel. And the great lesson is that you should never borrow money against the prospect of a future inheritance because the moment you do that, that inheritance will disappear. It's a moral lesson. You shouldn't do it. I learned from the, the great classic age of mystery stories in the 1930s that if you're going to disinherit someone, you should just do it. Don't threaten them in advance and then throw a party where someone can poison you. (laughs) A lot of people made that mistake in the 20s and 30s and um, something we can learn from. But when it comes to real world experience of inheritance, I don't have a lot to draw on And, and most of us, I imagine, are in a similar situation. It's not something we think about a lot. Um, When we think about uh, a life-changing event that could happen to us, an, an impossible sum of money bestowed upon us, we've stopped dreaming as a culture of uncles we didn't know about who die and leave us their millions. Instead, it's more winning the lottery. Winning the lottery. And yet, in Scripture, there's this strong theme of inheritance, There's something deep to understand about the nature of inheritance, things we can learn about our relationship to God by studying the idea of inheritance. And this morning, that's what I want to reflect on as we look at the story of Caleb. If you remember, when Moses sent spies into Canaan to scout the land, Joshua came back encouraged, thinking that they should go forward and conquer. The other spies for the most part, disagreed. They were afraid of the giants in the land. But Joshua was not alone in his faithfulness. There was another spy with him who bore the same report. His name was Caleb. Because the people didn't listen, they spent 40 years in the wilderness. And so the spies who went and surveyed the land aged 40 years. And then the conquest took place. We already saw last time that Joshua is now an old man. Not surprisingly, his fellow spy Caleb is an old man as well. And he enters back into the story in chapter 14 of Joshua. You have verse 19 in your order of worship, but I'd like to just read a little bit more than that to give you the context that those words appear in. This is a conquest narrative. So we're actually going back in time a little bit, because the conquest was over last time. And we saw in just the space of two verses that the giants, the Anakim, had been dealt with. But now we're sort of flashing back, and we're going to find out a little bit more about how they were dealt with, what happens there. And it turns out that Caleb was involved. So this is picking up in in verse 6 of chapter 14. Then the people of Judah came to Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kinezite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God in Kadesh Barnea, concerning you and me. I was forty years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought him word again as it was in my heart. But my brothers who went up with me made the heart of the people melt, yet I wholly followed the Lord my God. And Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden shall be an inheritance for you and your children forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold... The Lord has kept me alive, just as he said, these 45 years since the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel walked in the wilderness. And now, behold, I am this day 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. My strength now is as my strength was then, for war and for going and coming. So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day, for you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, with great fortified cities, it may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out, just as the Lord said. Then Joshua blessed him, and gave him Hebron, gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunah, for an inheritance. After the spies come back, Moses speaks these words to the faithful spy Caleb The the ground on which you trod will become an inheritance for you and your children. And what was required of Caleb after receiving that promise was a lot of waiting. The promise was made, and then they went into the wilderness. He had to endure. He had to wait patiently for 40 years. He had to endure the folly, the foolishness of the people who had not listened to his report, who had not been faithful as he had. He received the promise but then he had to wait. It took 45 years for the fulfillment of that promise that was made on that day. Not only that, but after 45 years, Caleb had to fight for it. The land didn't just come into his possession, he had to claim it, and he had to go and and wage war against the giants in order to get it. God gave him strength, and God used Caleb to bring about that great victory. It took two verses to describe earlier in the text, but now we see that the means God used to conquer those giants was an 85-year-old man who he had kept strong After all those years, he has to wait, and then at the age of 85, when he should be in retirement, he has to fight, he has to go to war in order to claim this inheritance. But he does it, and he receives a legacy. Because the land that he conquers, that he claims for himself, is not just for himself, it's an inheritance for him, but also for his children. It's an inheritance for him and for his children, Moses says, forever, in perpetuity. That's what was promised. That's what he won. And it's interesting to see that generational aspect being immediately called upon in the text. In the next chapter, in chapter 15, Caleb's actually approached by one of his children He's kind of put on the spot a little bit. You might argue he deserves it. Because during the conquest of the cities of the giants, when they come to this great fortress stronghold, Caleb makes a promise. He says to the man who conquers this city, I will give my daughter Oxa in marriage. So whoever happens to capture this city, I'm going to marry him to my daughter. It turns out that the victor of that battle is Othniel, who is a nephew of Caleb's, and so he marries Othniel to his daughter, Aksa, and they marry. And they have an interesting marriage. In the book of Judges, we learn that this man, Othniel, becomes the first of the judges who is appointed. So he has not only an act of bravery at the beginning of his career, but he also has an auspicious office later on down the line, but before we get there, something interesting happens. He marries Aksa, and Aksa says to him, go to my dad and tell him you want a field. Caleb has conquered this land. He has this great inheritance, and now his daughter is telling her new husband, it's time for you to go and claim some land from him. Now, We have to uh, read into things a little bit because we don't get into the minds of the characters much in this narrative. But it's very interesting to note that this man, Othniel, he has just um, won a great victory, so presumably he's very brave. He's fought giants fearlessly. You would think that he's not nervous about going to his father-in-law and asking if he could have some land. And yet, the way that the story plays out, Othniel doesn't ask. It's actually AXA who has to do the asking. I don't want to read too much into this, but perhaps on Mother's Day, ladies, we could reflect on similar situations where a man has been told what he ought to do. (laughs) A seemingly brave man, a man who's capable of doing the kind of things that, that he wants to do, and yet can't bring himself to do the thing that he should do, so that his wife has to do it for him. But that's what Aksa does. She goes before him, and she asks. So we read this in uh, chapter 15 of Joshua. So we'll start in verse 17. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, captured it, and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, his wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she got off her donkey, and Caleb said to her, "'What do you want?' She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So you see there's there's that little gap there. She says, ask my father for a field, but then she's the one who does the asking. And the historian is uh, charitably silent on why it had to work out quite that way. She asks for this field. She asks, I think the expression is beautiful. You've given me the land of the Negev. You've given me this dry land. and Now give me water to flow through it. Springs of water. And he gives her the upper and the lower springs. There are some commentators, though, who look at this passage, and they actually condemn Aksa. They say she's being a little presumptuous here. She's already gotten some land, and now she's going and asking for more land. She probably shouldn't be doing that. She's claiming too much. But to be honest with you, I like this. It reminds me of the generosity of the father of the prodigal son. You think about that story where a son brashly comes and says, "Um, I'd like my inheritance now. I'd like to enjoy it now and not have to wait for it. The father gives him the inheritance. Not surprisingly, he squanders it. And when he comes home finally, he's not shamed for it. He's embraced. The generosity of the father is demonstrated in that kindness. And it suggests that the father isn't concerned that having given half of, of his goods away, that, that he won't have enough. Right? He has a mentality of abundance, not of scarcity. He's not concerned that he doesn't have enough to bless his wayward son. And so there's something in that generosity of the prodigal father and the generosity of Caleb here that I admire. I mean, remember, this is a man who waited a long time because of the stupidity of other people. For 40 years, he got to meditate on how unfaithful Israel was in comparison to him. And now, the promise that was made to him by Moses, who's now dead, and he has outlived all of his contemporaries. Now, he has to actually fight to accomplish the thing he was supposed to be given you could understand how a man like that could be hard. Demanding. The sort of one who expects people to measure up. That's not how he treats his child here. He doesn't say, wait a second, I already gave you land. He just gives it to her immediately as a blessing, as a marriage gift. He has this great inheritance. It's not for him. It's a legacy to pass on. God has given him a great gift so that he has something to give. And he gives it generously. If you think about the nature of God's covenant promises, I mean, this says something to us. Covenant promises that God makes to us and to our children implied in that gift is a grant of generosity. That we're meant to be generous with what God has given to us. That we're meant to be open-handed with the grace that has been given to us. That it's meant to flow. That God hasn't come and made a promise to a generation. But a promise that should flow from generation to generation to generation. The very idea of inheritance implies gifts that are meant to be handed down with love. That's what we see Caleb do. And it's a lesson to us. I said before, we don't always understand what inheritance is meant to be about because we have so many bad examples in literature of how inheritance can go wrong, the conflict that inheritance can create. We don't have a lot of first-hand experience of inheritance to draw on as well. And so I think it's true that these days when we think of uh, inheritance, the, the thing you might think of is that dream of winning the lottery. I mean, even those of us who don't buy lottery tickets occasionally daydream about weird circumstances under which a winning ticket could come into our possession and change everything. God might, might give me the winning numbers and, and, and bestow a fortune upon me, which I, of course, would use wisely to his honor and glory. That's, that's what we think of. An inheritance is like winning the lottery. It changes everything. It changes your life. If you get an inheritance, then you can pay off all your debts. You can build a bigger house. You'll have more friends, trust me. An inheritance would be wonderful. It would be wonderful. But the thing is, an inheritance is more than a payout. Inheritance is much more than just a windfall. Inheritance is different than that, because an inheritance comes by right, not by chance. An inheritance comes by right, not by chance. Think about it. Moses doesn't say to Caleb, the land that you walked on will be yours to do with whatever you want. You could pass it down to your kids. You could put oil derricks on it. You can dig it up. I don't care. It's your land. Do what you want. Instead, The promise is the land is for you and your children. It's not just generosity that Caleb is acting on and giving the land to his children. The children, they have the land by right. They're included in the promise. That inheritance is something that they have a claim to. It's not just chance. It's different from winning the lottery in that sense because this is a windfall that you're entitled to. That is yours by right of who you are. It has been promised to you. It's different too, though, because an inheritance comes through love. The lottery may change your life. But when you cash the check, don't think it means that the state loves you. It doesn't. It doesn't. You just happen to have had the right number to get the payout. But it doesn't mean that the state looks down on you with love and benevolence and kindness. But inheritance does come by love. The lottery will never love you like your parents do. Whatever they bequeath to you, they bequeath to you as a legacy of love. Of love. There's an affection that comes with it. This is also why... An inheritance, something bequeathed to you, though it may not have the monetary value, it has other values wrapped up with it. There are other things that are important wrapped up with it because of the love, the affection that comes through. Because an inheritance comes through family. An inheritance flows through generational ties, even when you inherit something from someone you're not related to, you are included in the bequests, even though you're not a, a blood relative. That act of inclusion, it kind of makes you family. It makes you family. Now, we're accustomed to that causing conflict, because right the children are angry that someone else was included and the inheritance was divided up. But that act of inclusion is, is a kind of adoption. Right? It, bestowing that benevolence... It makes you family. Of course, we inherit much more from family than monetary bequests. Your parents may have spent your inheritance, but they've already passed down so much. We can talk about genetic inheritance, the traits that we have in us that we've inherited from our parents, that they've given to us, Um, all of that coming through family, family. So an inheritance comes by right, it comes through love, it comes by family, and Paul speaks of salvation as an inheritance, of eternal life as an inheritance. This is in Ephesians chapter 1. If you have a section of in your order of worship as well, in Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 11, Paul says, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul, when he looks upon salvation itself, sees it as a kind of Trinitarian inheritance. The inheritance of everlasting life is yours by right, not by chance. I know at first it's going to seem like the wrong way to talk about salvation. Because isn't salvation by grace? How can we say that salvation is ours by right and not by chance? Paul says that the Father works all things according to the counsel of his will. He says that he has made you an heir according to purpose, according to his purpose, not by chance, but by purpose, he has included you in this inheritance. And he has the power to do all things as he desires to do them. He desires to make you an inheritor of everlasting life by right. And this inheritance comes through love, as all inheritances should. In love he predestined us, Paul writes earlier in this chapter in verses 4 and 5. In love he predestined us. So this act that happens according to the counsel of God before the foundation of the world is something God does in love. Christ won this inheritance of salvation through his death, and that death was a demonstration of love. In Romans 5.8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. An act of love an inheritance that comes to us from love. And here's the interesting thing. It comes to us through family, by family as well. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, 17. Fellow heirs with Christ through adoption. We've been included in the bequests, Although we were children of wrath, disobedient, out of love, Christ has died for us. Out of love, we have been sealed to inherit by the Holy Spirit. Interesting to see the way that the Holy Spirit is described here as a guarantee, a guarantee, a seal. You need a guarantee when the thing that you've been promised isn't going to be given to you immediately when you're going to doubt and you're going to need something to look back on. We just witnessed the sign of baptism which our confession describes as a sign and seal of the covenant of grace because this is the Holy Spirit signifying the grace that has been promised. And we look to that seal as a guarantee. As a child receives that sign, that seal, and and ages, grows up, matures in faith, we can point back to that sign as a guarantee of the promise as we encourage faith. Now, saying all of this, describing salvation as an inheritance, Paul then goes on In speaking to the Ephesians, to talk about his prayer for them, what he's praying for them, what his hope for them is. And it's interesting what it is he prays for them. It's not, I'm praying for you that you will hold fast, although he's going to talk about holding fast later. I'm praying to you that you will be obedient. It's not that, it's something else. Here's what he's praying He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Paul's prayer is that their eyes will be opened to the glorious inheritance which is theirs. He's told them, you are an heir. You stand to inherit the greatest inheritance, and his prayer is that they would glimpse what that means, that they would see the significance of what that means because it will make a difference. What difference will it make? Aksa, Caleb's daughter, knew the difference it makes. When you are an heir, you ask and receive, you ask in boldness. You ask by right. You're not embarrassed or ashamed to ask your Father to bless you with a field. You do it because you are an heir to that. You trust with confidence in the generosity of the Father. Jesus says in John 16, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It's not a stingy Savior. There's a generosity to those words. We ought to be expecting generosity from the Father. Look, if you have an inheritance, you live like an heir. When you trust in your inheritance, you live like an heir, you live differently. Most of us don't have an inheritance to count on. But imagine that you did. Think about your bills. Think about your frustrations at work. Think about the problems that you have with your car. Think about all the things you don't have. Think about the travel you can't do. Now imagine you were going to inherit a great fortune. How might your choices change? I don't know about you, but if I knew I was going to inherit a great fortune, I can't imagine myself doing any responsible thing ever after. (laughs) Joy every day. Indulgence. Whatever my whims are, they will be satisfied because I'm an heir. I'm going to inherit. I wouldn't worry about any debt that I might incur because it will be paid generously when I come into my fortune. It would change the way I live, the way I make choices. Stuff that worries me now wouldn't worry me. I wouldn't be concerned if I could really afford to help this person or contribute to that cause or, or, or go on that trip. I could do all of that stuff because all of the accounts would be settled in the end. And I could trust in that. If you have an inheritance coming it changes how you live. You live like an heir. If you Are the heir of everlasting life? Then stay faithful. Caleb waited for 45 years and then he had to fight for what he had coming. But he remained faithful because he trusted. He knew that what had been promised would be his. And as warlike as this guy was at 85 years old, I mean, he is boasting about his strength and his prowess. But when it comes down to the challenge, he says, it may be that the Lord will be with me. It may be that he will strengthen me. He recognizes that he might be the most vigorous 85-year-old on the field of battle, but the battle belongs to the Lord. And he trusts. He trusts. He stays faithful over all those years, and you may have to do the same. So persevere. To doubt is human, And yet our doubts are wavering. They're no credit to us. They show our lack of confidence, that we believe and unbelieve at the same time. So we do doubt, we do waver, but we should strive to trust in God and his promises, to trust our doubts and our wavering maybe are a sign of our unenlightened hearts. And our prayer ought to be that the Spirit would open our eyes to what we truly stand to inherit in Christ. If you're an heir to everlasting life, then stay faithful. And if you're an heir to everlasting life, then be generous. Be generous. I said before, all the foibles that we learn about inheritance from literature, uh, the Victorian novels, you always know who the, the, the likable scoundrel is, because he is the guy who, who racks up all the debts and thinks he's going to get an inheritance to pay them off. He sort of it, it, The example is basically, don't be like this guy. He means well, but this is a foolish thing to do. But if you are an inheritor of eternal life, there is nothing foolish about being generous, because your debts will be paid. They will be paid. Caleb doesn't need to worry That if he parcels out too much of his land, he won't have enough left. That he can afford to be generous, not because he's gotten so much land, but because of the God who he serves, the generosity of the God he faithfully serves. And we should follow his example. We could list all sorts of things that are true of us as Christians that ought not to be true, but I think maybe there's no greater reproach to us as a people than our lack of generosity. That we claim to trust in the providence of God, but we also hedge our bets. We also don't extend ourselves too far. We don't take too many risks. We don't expose ourselves in that way. What does it say about us that we're afraid to give? Again, that maybe we need our eyes opened a little more. For an heir of everlasting life, be generous. And if you are an heir of everlasting life, learn to forgive. Learn to forgive. In Luke 7, Jesus tells the story of two debtors. And the moneylender forgives both of their debts. Jesus turns to Peter and says, No, Peter, tell me, which of these two guys loves the moneylender more? Mm-hmm. Peter's like, I think it's the guy who had the greater debt forgiven. And Jesus says, You're right. You're right. Because the more you've been forgiven, the more love you feel in response. That's the basis for forgiveness. For forgiveness. How much have you been forgiven? When the disciples want to know, technically, Jesus, how many times do we have to forgive? When do we get to stop forgiving? Just give us a ballpark figure. Like, Jesus gives them this insane... Level of forgiveness that they have to go through because they've been forgiven for so much. The forgiveness of God towards us is meant to spark a, a, a generosity of forgiveness. We pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's a, a, a connection there. It's not forgive us our debts and hold everybody else accountable for the commitments they've made and broken. We ask for forgiveness and we covenant to be forgiving in reflection of that. Forgiving. You can't love God and hate your brother, John says. 1 John 4.20. Bitterness, resentment, anger, these are all natural reactions to being hurt. When people hurt you, when they break your heart, Bitterness is what you'll feel, and resentment and anger, those are all natural to feel. But if God hasn't treated you with bitterness and resentment and anger, then you must learn to forgive. You must follow his example and learn to forgive. In Colossians 3:23 and 24, Paul says, Whatever you do, Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When Caleb seized his inheritance, it was God working in him to do it by God's strength. And I believe that Caleb's generosity was also God working in him as well. To serve Christ, we must serve one another. He has placed us in the midst of our fellow image bearers so that we can serve him by ministering to one another. We are Christ's fellow heirs. Fellow heirs. We are stewards of a glorious inheritance. And that inheritance is meant to be passed down